Hello, and welcome back to the What The Fork podcast in association with Viber Goalkeeping. It's been a little while since we had a something special, but today's show is reserved for a very well-liked former number nine who appeared almost 60 times for Sunderland in the Premier League. I'm delighted to say, welcome to the show, Fraser Campbell. How are you, mate? You well? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, I know I'm ignoring your messages for a while, <laughs> but you know. So right, you got there in the end. Got there in the end, mate. I'm not going to blame you for that. You better to be off Instagram, trust me. Um, before we do, obviously, delve deep into your time at Sunderland, it's been a bit of a bizarre six or seven months for everyone, let alone a footballer. Um, how's it been getting back into competitive football, but without fans? Yeah, it's, it's a, a crazy, like I said, a crazy period that we've had to go through. And the worst thing or the, the most strange thing, like I said, is, is not having any fans there. It's like, it's a bit flat. Yeah. There's no there's no atmosphere. There's no one shouting at you, giving you abuse, or no one getting behind you when you're doing well. So it's it is a strange feeling. It's just you and you can you can actually hear your teammates, you hear everything that everybody says. So it's it's it feels a bit more like a training ground match than you know an actual competitive match. But you know, that's what we've got to do with at the minute. Um and you, you just gotta get on with it, just play football. Yeah, so just like an adjustment for everyone, I suppose, isn't it? Um, yeah. I want to touch a little bit on your journey to Wearside, not too much because Sunderland's my main interest here, um, I'm not <laughs> going to lie. But you were scouted by Man United when you were 10 years old. Obviously, you're from yeah. Huddersfield. Um, yeah. I've had a few former Man United players on here, like uh, Wes Brown being one of the, the main ones. But what was that like as a 10-year-old before you even a teenager being picked up by potentially the world's biggest club, really? Yeah, I don't think you quite, like I said, I was 10, you don't quite realise the magnitude of it. You know, it's, you know, Man United was my team that I supported then as well. So it was, you know, it was extra special. Um, but you don't, because like I said, you're 10 years old, you're not thinking, oh, in 10 years time, I can be, you know, playing at Old Trafford or whatever. He's, you know, you're barely thinking what you you can barely remember what you had for breakfast and you don't know what you're doing the day after. So it's, you know, it was, it was really nice to, to be associated with the club, even just with the training kit, you know, with the badge on and stuff like that. But I know, I don't think I really quite understood like the path that that set me on. And, you know, it's, it was, it was a great start to the career, to a career, you know, you're starting at the Europeans, probably what, well, Europe's biggest club at the time. And it's, yeah, it was Dream come true, really. Absolutely. One of the many things that Man United do, and I've had a very, I talk about all my United players I've had on, one of them was Danny Higginbotham, obviously a, a generation before you, but he spoke to me about his time at Royal Antwerp. Uh, your first real taste was at Royal Antwerp, and it, from maybe from an English fan's perspective, you're looking at Royal Antwerp as just a feeder club at Man United, but they're mental, pa- passionate fans. You went there for a season, scored 20 <laughs> goals, what kind of life lessons does being in a foreign country at like 17, 18 teach you? Well, there was a lot because I was, I just turned 18. I'd only just dropped past my driving test. So, I'd, so for a start, I was driving in the UK for about a month and then <laughs> I was driving on the other side of the road, for, for, you know, just started driving. Um, there was four of us living out there. So we we're living on our own. Um, you know, obviously there was, there was Danny Simpson, Johnny Evans, you know, both players from Sunderland, um, and were out there at the time. So there's there a mass, there's loads of learning curves out there involved in men's football, competitive. And you touched on the fans there, they were wild. If you was winning the games, there was flares and everyone's happy. If you're losing, there was throwing rocks at the bus and stuff like that. So 
it was um yeah there was a lot of experience out there and um you know I always look back with fond memories to, go to my time in uh, Antwerp I didn't realize you went with uh, Johnny Evans who is probably yeah. at the top of my head one of the best Sunderland defenders of my lifetime so composed <laughs> like 18 yeah. year old and he looked like he was 42 years old he had, like yeah. that other experience um oh, <laughs> Does that kind of experience like shape you quite a bit then more than you think so and you don't realise till you're like 33 how much that shaped you then? No, yeah, definitely. Um, like I said, you, you, my first taste of men's football and up until that point I was just playing reserve football and, and youth team games and like I said, there's not much crowds there. There's a couple 20, 30 people there watching and you win a game, everyone's happy. But if you lose a game, it's, you know, it's all parents. No one's kicking off and throwing rocks at you. Yeah. <laughs> so, or abroad, and you know, there's, it's a business, there's money on the line. People live and die. They're football clubs. They're coming to every game, away matches. You know, it just, it, it sets you up for that realisation that people um, invest a lot in football and, you know, what you do on a weekend can affect people's week or lives even so it's you know it's it's important to that you you know you you do what as best as you can every game especially when there's thousands of people watching yeah absolutely i'm a Sunderland fan so i can attest for that mate yeah. um you did go on to hull as well and i think hull is where you probably first started getting really recognized especially over in yeah. you know the uk looking through the squad there was tons of experience and definitely characters there you had nick barmby who few years yeah. previous playing in the 5-1 over Germany. Dean Windass, one of the best characters yeah. the game's ever seen. Michael Turner, obviously, who came to Sunderland later. Um, yeah. Going to a team like Colin and playing in a promotion chase and playing such a big part alongside those characters, does that just enhance your experience that you had at Royal Antwerp like tenfold? Yeah, ex- exactly. Again, you know, we I think we finished just outside the playoffs in Antwerp. So that was disappointing. So then I went to Hull and again, it's... It was my first exposure in the UK leagues. Um, you know, everyone's watching Skies there and stuff like that. So it's, and like I said, I was 18 at the time. Yeah. Uh, they had um, people like Dean Windass, who was 38 or something like that. He'd been around um, here, there and everywhere, scored goals. Like I said, he was a, a massive character, proper, it was a proper old-fashioned, like, men's club yeah. um, gym room. So it was, that was a new experience for me. And, it was it was good, like I said, character building. Um, I think that's you know probably half the reason I play the way I play because you know it was tough. You had to be rough. You had to be um, robust. Um, you had to fight. You had to work hard because if you didn't, the senior lads were all over you. There was no like picking your words. You you, you know if you was having a bad game, you'd you'd know about it, and not just games, uh, training sessions. So it was, yeah, it's, it was it was a great experience, and obviously, on, on top of uh, playing with play, players like that, uh, we had a we had a great run. We started off, I think, when I joined, there was like 16th or something in the league, and then ended up going to all the way to Wembley and um, getting promotion into the into Premier League for the very first time. So it was, you know, that was again another remarkable year for myself, and it was um, a great start uh, for my my footballing career in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like I said before, it really enhanced your reputation to the point where I think you came back the season later, you played the first game and you played and scored in pre-season for Man United and then go on to Spurs signing for Wandy Ramos. He's brought in and then sacked in October. Harry Redknapp yeah. takes over. He signs to four. He signs Robbie Keane. It's probably not a good sign for you, but you probably played 
Yeah, not, not not the best. I won't say anything bad about Jermaine Defoe, though, to be fair, because he is, he is <laughs> no, kind of the equivalent of God, isn't he? But yeah. um, you probably played less than you like to, shall we say. So when it hits yeah. summer, you've probably got many... Well, I remember there was many rumours kicking about, and I think one of the big ones was, um, you know, Hall were obviously looking to bring yeah. you in on a more permanent basis. Sunderland were in there. There's probably other people as well. But how many options did you have at that point? Um, I can't off the top of my head. I just remember those two. There was other ones that were interested, but you know, um, those were the main two. And you, I don't know if you knew, but um, I, the summer before I went to when I went to um, Spurs on loan, I was sat with Steve Bruce, mm-hmm. and he was the manager of Wigan then. And I was going on loan to Wigan until it was transfer deadline day, and then uh, Ferguson rang me, Sir Alex Ferguson rang me, told me that. Trying to buy Berbatov, and I had to go to Spurs. So I had to tell Steve, or sat with a cat, go to Wigan alone with you. So um, I had to go to Spurs. Anyway, the year after, when I was, uh, I, was I was leaving Man United, uh, Steve Bruce was at Sunderland then, and he was like, I'd love to take you up there. So in my mind, that's I was already, I already set that I was going to Sunderland because, you know, it's the, um, the massive club. Um, he told me that the likes of Darren Bent and people like that would be coming through the doors and it was an exciting um, project for me or um, to go up there and play in the Premier League with, with such a good squad of players and you know have a good crack with it um, I think with Brucey right and I, I look from a Sunderland perspective since he's left he's probably been a bit more more Mike when he was here I think he was quite well supported and I, I don't buy into the notion that we didn't like him because he was a Jordy never have never will um, but I think a lot of credit is maybe taken away from him sometimes um, because there's been a few players that I've spoke to that said you know he was such a big pull in coming towards Sunderland because of the way that he was you'd obviously known him a year beforehand he'd put yeah. the groundwork in Sunderland are a huge club, I get that. But how big was Steve Bruce in bringing it to Sunderland then? Well, yeah, like you said, Sunderland was a, a big pull in it, but he, he was as well because obviously he was um, well spoken of uh, from the man, his Manchester United days. Um, he knew how what the Man United way was and there was been a, lo- a few players go there already. So it was like over the years to, to Sunderland. So it was, it, he was a big pull and he was, he was easy to talk to. Um, you knew he, he was black and white. You knew exactly what you was getting from him. He wanted hard workers. If you're doing well, he'd praise you, give you days off, extra time in the spa kind of thing. But if you're doing terrible, he'd shower you until these veins here on the side of his neck look like about to explode. So, yeah, it was a massive pull for me personally. Um, yeah, I, enjoy, I enjoyed my time working with him. You think he's underrated, Steve Bruce? Uh, possibly, yeah. You know, he's been around a long time managing, and it. You know, if, if you're an awful manager, you know you fall away on the wayside like like anyone. So yeah, I think he is a little bit. I think he. Um, I think with the season that he did get the stack on, it was the season after. It was the the five one at Newcastle that seemed to just put the nail in the coffin. Really, you know, it was it was, and no one was more hurt than than he was around the place. But you know, it's it's the way it went. Yeah, it worked out in the end. I can't remember the last time they beat us, so that's always good. Um, <laughs> the squad that we built, I remember being really excited that summer. And I think, you know, you remember this slightly, but I sort of remember it as a fan. We finished 17th and it was literally the fact that I think at the time, um, 
Newcastle were just worse than us, I think. And they, they went down. That that was basically it. It was just three bad teams. I think Cold struggled as well. And we yeah. were like the, the best of the worst, if that made sense, and just did it by the skin of our teeth because we barely won any games. But then the summer came and Brucey came in. You were the first signing, but Lee Catamore, legend. Yeah. Uh, Darren yeah. Bent, hugely important signing. Lorik Sarna, John Mensah. Oh. Players you can just remember that were like good players for something. And it was exciting when they came in. So you'd came from a really strong Man United squad. You'd been playing in front of Rooney. You've got Alex Ronaldo in the squad. So you know what a good player looks like. But how much did the Sunderland squad impress you when you came in? Uh, well, I was, at, I was at Spurs with Bentley, so I already knew him. Mm-hmm. Um, Lee Catamol, as who played with him throughout the uh, England youth setup. Yes. Uh, Kieran Richardson, obviously, I knew him. Anton Ferdinand had seen him play. So there's there's a lot of players there that I already knew. I knew the capabilities of the squad. I think Phil, was Phil Baz? Yeah, Phil Baz yeah, was there. Was there. Yeah. I knew um, I knew a lot of the squad anyway. So it was it was um, it wasn't really a surprise. Um, Cessignon, I'd never seen him before. He was he was a really good player on his day. Um, I'm trying to think who else it was. Steed, Malbron, fantastic. Steve. Footballer, yeah. Never, I never had the chance to play closely with him before until obviously came to Sunderland, and he was, you know, he was, he was brilliant. Give his all for 60, 70 minutes. <laughs> he had to come off, but no, nah, was, there was a lot of talent around the place. Craig Gordon as well, Scott, yeah. like record signing fee for a keeper at the time, I think yeah. it was. So yeah, there was there was abundance of potential in the squad. You know, like you said, we finished 17th that year and I think the season after we finished 10th or something like that. Yeah, he got us to, I think it was either, th- I think 17th and then when Bruce took over 13th and then 10th. So yeah. like he, he did sort of flip it a little bit. It, was, it, it felt like it was going, you know, in the right the, the right direction. You was progressing a little bit every year. Squad was staying similar each season and, you know, hopefully you'd, you'd hope that you just keep chipping away and keep going up up, up the league. One of the players that year sort of came through with that year and maybe he came, he was like a bench player at the start and then it eventually became like a player that would play every week and now he's a Champions League winner and probably the best midfielder in England, in my opinion, but Jordan Henderson. Um, oh, never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> he's not bad, is he? He's done all right. Um, yeah. Great guy. When he was young then coming through, because I can't imagine you much about him when he came in, so you'll have seen him at first hand raw and fresh. Yeah. Are you surprised by how successful he's been? No, and I say this to everyone. Um, this, I've been I've been playing what sixteen years now, and mm-hmm. you can tell the youngsters, even when you're a youngster yourself, that are gonna progress in football, and you can tell the ones that are gonna, not gonna do everything in their power to to get there. Jordan was one of those that was, you know, was first at the training ground. He was last there. He was. He'd, he'd never like the season finish. He wouldn't go on holiday to there and everywhere. He'd, he might have a five days rest, and then it. It what's the place called? There's a running track somewhere near where he lived. There's a like an athletics club where he lived, and he used to go down there and just do laps like every other day. So you, you, obviously things like that people might not see like on a Saturday afternoon, but throughout the week and throughout the season, you see what he's done and, and and now he's like you said champion of Europe captain of the biggest well the best team in the league and you know it surprise, might surprise a lot of people but people that have seen him closely throughout you know his career it's just it was always going to happen kind of thing yeah, yeah. 
absolutely. As it was with the season itself, much like Jordan Henderson at Sunderland, we we kind of probably did better than we expected originally and had a fantastic start of the season. We beat Liverpool, uh, beat Arsenal at home, both fantastic atmospheres, but the one that sticks out for me is, is Liverpool because, A, the beach ball. Um, yeah. I think he came on for Kenwin Jordan at the 66th minute for that game. And, and one thing that really sticks out for me, yes, the beach ball, but Lorik Sarna going to centre-half, second half, and being an absolute monster. Um, yeah. what, what, what a man he was. I love him. He had, he had a, I think he was, yeah, a bad knee or something like that. He had a bad knee. Yeah. He strapped a couple of painkillers on a Saturday morning and he was just headbutting walls. <laughs> he could get sent off in a, in a flash, but for the time that he was on the pitch, he was a proper leader of men and it was it was a pleasure to have that type of character as, you, as your captain you know when you're going into battle you're up against the wall and he was just there slick his air back and tackle someone <laughs> yeah, like, him him and Catmull in the middle he must have like not worried too much about much getting past ah, yeah and David Myler as well <laughs> a few few lads there that loved the tackle so yeah it was it was um, nice nah, like like you'll have known, when someone f- flies in at the um, stadium, I like the whole f- stadium jumps up, celebrate, and there's many a time I can remember him tackling someone, and it was like we'd scored a goal. It was, you know, a lot of big tackles he used to do. He's good. Now, I can't speak out of enough. Good guy. Great guy. What are your memories of the, the beach ball moment? Because you would have been on the bench at the time. I think he came on second half. Yeah, so th- <laughs> the thing is with Benny. Like everyone says, oh, he's lucky, he scores all these lucky goals. And until like you're with him day to day, like we could be training, like I said, it could be Lorick could be smashing Catamol. So there's a scramble at the side of the box. Bards is in there, Miles is in there, I'm in there, Titus Bramble's flying in. We're all just having a scrap for the ball. And Benny could just be stood at the other side of the box, just waiting, just not getting involved. It'll ricochet off someone's knee, roll across the box, and it'll be there, and it'll just tap it in. Yeah. You know what I mean, that that was his type of luck. But the more often you see it, you know, it's it's not. It can't just be luck because it can't happen that often. It's just I don't know. He's got some sort of spell on football, and he could just be in the right place at the right time. He probably put that balloon behind the goal before the game. <laughs> yeah, he was in, and you know what, he was, as much as the relationship has soured with Sonnen and Darren yeah. Ben, that season, he was dynamite. Everything he touched turned to goal, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, that's that was the thing. And like, I, when I played up front with him, you know, he's he's much better goal scoring than I am. I, I could just concentrate on running around, doing the easy bit, tackling people, getting sweaty and just, you know, put my hopes on him getting half a chance and, would bag it and would win one nil. So it was, you know, it's always a bonus to have someone like that in your team that can, you know, that can nick a goal in the dying seconds of a game or whatever. On the flip side, and like the people you were directly competing with, because I know we obviously went into the right wing eventually and then kind of came up front. But I think the first mm-hmm. season you had Benty, who was pretty much irreplaceable. He was the best striker in the league, I think, at that point yeah. in terms of chance um, ratio and, and goal career and uh, goal scoring. But next one was Kenwin Jones, who. I, I always say Kenwin didn't have the career that, in my opinion, he should have had because sometimes it's something he literally was unplayable. And there's the famous John Terry quote. Um, there's a lot said about Kenwin and what he was like in the dressing room when he was always oh, laid back and this, that and the other. I think, obviously, those th- front three, yourself, Kenwin and, and Darren Ben, obviously, you seemed quite close. How yeah. was your relationship with Kenwin and what was he like and how good was he? Uh, he was brilliant. You know, I, I spoke to him the other day, um, I had a text conversation with him the other day, just 
catching up on things. So, it's, you know, it's like you said, we all were close off the field. So it was, it didn't really feel like competition on the field. It was, mm-hmm. you know, we're all in this together. We're all striving to make, you know, the team better. So it was, it was a good dynamic we had. And, you know, obviously Kenwin was a different player to I was, a different player to Benny. So we're all, all strikers, obviously, but three different types of strikers. So, you know, it, it kind of worked. No one was ever spitting the dummy out and getting upset. It was, you know, like I said, just a great team spirit there. And, you know, wish that we'd have, you know, stuck together a bit longer and um, hopefully we'd have done better in the league as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Golden days for me these days where we're at. But um, I think, you know, you've touched on it before. That there's players that you still keep in touch with. So who were you closest with at Sunderland? Um, close with obviously Benny, um, Jordan, Myla, um, Bardo. Um, but those were like who I was really close with, and the rest were close with, but I obviously don't speak to them as often as I speak to them, them three or four guys. But yeah, it was it was a tight knit dressing room. We because there was a few young lads as well, young mm-hmm. girl lads. So we used to all go home and play. Call of Duty or FIFA online, like eight of us every day, and we'd go out for a meal or whatever. You know, it was it was proper togetherness, and and I think that showed on the on the pitch. You know, when we when we played, well, when we had chance to all play together. I think I can't remember who it was I spoke to now at the top of my head, but um, he used to talk about Steve Marbrank, and he used to say he was a really really quiet guy until he got two pints in him, and he was just a yeah. strange person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, he had a split personality. <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he had two pounds, became bipolar, he was all over the place. <laughs> what a phenomenal uh, player he was as well, though. Phenomenal uh, player, Steve Marbrook. Yeah, so calm and composed, but like technically it was it was brilliant. He could have three men on him and he wasn't wasn't lightning quick. I won't even say he was quick, he was just he just knew how to manipulate the ball well and get out of sticky situations. There was that situation, I think it was the Man City game where he nutmegged James Milner, I think, twice, was it? Yeah, the box, yeah. Nutmegged him twice. And it's not a bad player, nutmeg, when you're looking back. Nah, yeah. but, um, the thing, thing with Steed was, there was always that rumour that he'd be smoking like 40 a day, but apparently that's not true. Apparently he wasn't a, a Marlborough King fan, but apparently he used to smoke 40 a day. I don't, well, I don't know about that. I've Maybe never, just the way I played. I've seen him have a two pints and then get a cigar, but, um, <laughs> but no, not 40 a day. I don't know about that. To be fair, he could have played with a pipe and slippers the way that he played sometimes, <laughs> couldn't he? So it would have suited his luck. I'll give him that. Um, as it was with, with Sunderland, um, one thing I find quite interesting is, you know, I think everyone knows we're a big club. Uh, same with the whole of the Northeast, really, if we're completely honest. But I think it takes a lot of people by surprise when they actually join the club and they see how important it is, it's like literally life and death, like quite liberally. Do you yeah. think players don't really understand the size of the club until they're inside of that bubble? Yeah, I agree. Because when I first went up there, obviously, you know the history of Sunderland, you know it's a big club. But then you go up there, driving through the city centre and every other person's got a Sunderland shirt on. It could be raining, it could be <laughs> yeah, it could be giant just out there with a Sunderland shirt on and if not sure maybe they've got a Sunderland jacket or something like that so it's like you said it's it's life and death up there to live and breathe the football so it's you know it's, it makes it like for myself it made it that more important to try you know do your best and put in that extra work because it's you know working class club kind of thing and you know you want to you want to do 
give back a bit. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, they're, everyone's working hard up there to, to pay for season tickets or shirts or whatever. So it's, you know, you try and try and your best as you can to, to give the fans the money's worth. You know, sometimes it's not the case, but, you know, you've got to go out there with the, the attempt to do that. Did you find that in Sunderland as well? Because obviously you've been at a lot of big clubs since. Um, and obviously you were probably the biggest club in, in Europe at the time, like I said previously. But do you find that like in Sunderland you get a lot more people coming up to you in the street and wanting to talk about just the game, not necessarily get a photo and stuff like that? That's the difference I tend to see when I speak to players. Yeah, yeah. It's like, like it's their life. It's their day-to-day life. They would happily sit and chat to you, whether it be at the petrol station, the park, the post office to sit there and you could have a full-on conversation for an hour about the next week's game or the game that's been and so it's, it is it is really nice you know to to have the whole community invested in the football club um and it's it's nice to be part of because it makes it not just your your teammates that you're you know your extended family because a lot of lads don't live in the areas that mm-hmm. they play so it's, you know, it's like the whole community that you're involved in, which is, it makes it, you know, that much easier to be living away from home or wherever you're from, do you know what I mean? A lot of the time you'll find, I think there's players, and especially over the past few years, certain characters, and I won't mention any names, but they wilt under that pressure. And the players that have done really well elsewhere come to something and they just crumble because of that. Um, do you think you need to have a certain kind of character to succeed at something, though, even if you don't fully succeed to kind of take the pressure of something? Yeah, I think you've got to be, yeah, like I said, you've got to be approachable. And if you're just like a bit standoffish or whatever and people are coming up to you and you can't really act it, then, you know, you can you can go under. But, you know, if, you, if you're humble with it and you, you're, um, you know, you just be, like I said, friendly, approachable people because the people in the northeast are the friendliest people that I've ever come across. So, you know, they're not going to go out of the way to be horrible to you. Even the Newcastle fans would be out in Newcastle and, you know, they'd have a little laugh and a joke. But it would never be anything like sinister kind of, do you know what I mean? It's, it was all lightheartedly because, yeah, you know, everyone up there, like you said, just, just loves, lives and breathes football. So, it's yeah, you've got, to, you've got to be able to be deal with that. And if you can't, you're struggling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you definitely are, 100%. Um, as it was, you started getting into the team on a regular basis. Uh First and foremost on the, the right-hand side. And then during yeah. pre-season, you had a really tremendous pre-season. I remember you scored four goals against Portugal. Kenwin Jones was sold. I know Jan came in not long afterwards, but you actually started the season in front with Darren Bent. And it was it was seen as that the season where Fraser Campbell's going to make his mark and this is where we're going to see the best of him. And then we play Man City. Um, yeah. <laughs> and My you, knee disagrees. Yeah. Just decides to go, doesn't it? And I remember it. I was at yeah. the game and I remember instantly you could tell. But how did you feel when it first happened? So when I first like went down, it was painful. And then I was lying on the floor thinking, oh, God, this is hurts. But then I, I was thinking, I'll just wait a couple of minutes and it'll ease off. Went to stand up and my whole knee went like backwards. I was thinking, oh, that's, that's obviously not right. <laughs> so then... Because I've never, never really been injured before that. I'd, I'd had maybe a week here and there with like tight hamstrings or stuff like that. So I've never really been injured before. So to have it in my mind that potentially I could be out for seven, eight months, it was just like, oh, that's not going to happen. So then obviously when I found out, it was a killer. Because like you said, I, I had a good summer. I worked hard on the off-season, 
came back pre-season, working really well, started scoring goals. The manager was um, giving me compliments and stuff in the press and stuff like that. So it was, it was, it was looking like it was going to be the start of a really good year for me. But then, like you said, get to the third game. I think it was the first game, Just Birmingham. Birmingham, 2-2. Two, two. Yeah. Then up. <laughs> so we yeah. to play on the wing again, um, running around like headless chicken. And then <laughs> he, did he, was it the third? Did he get sent off twice? Yeah, he got sent off in the first, I think. He, he, yeah, he came back from suspension and got sent off <laughs> again at Wigan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It was... Uh, it was a yeah. It looked like it was a good start to the season. You know, we had a bit of a blip with cats, but then yeah, started against Man City, and then my knee just went disaster. Do you know when? I mean, you would have been what twenty one then? Uh, yeah, I'm at twenty two. I think twenty three. Yeah. So you've been like all through your career, no bother with injury, never had to have more than a couple of weeks out. No. When that happens to your knee. And you, obviously you said, I know that's not right. Do, do you immediately know that's going to be a six to seven monther? No, because like at the time it was a relatively, well, it wasn't relatively new, but it was just something that I never heard of before. Like the mm-hmm. ACL, let's say the ACL now and everyone knows, oh yeah, it's going to be yeah. eight months or whatever out. Back then I didn't really hear of anyone doing it too often. So it was just, it was just a shock to the system. And then obviously I did all my rehab uh, got to like the seventh month and funny enough I was training on the Friday before I was playing Man City again yeah. and then I did it I did it again in the training session but this time it just felt like a click so then I got up and just walked in I thought it's going to be alright he said how's it feel it's like, it doesn't feel too bad so you know, I travelled down to Man- Manchester so travelled down to Manchester went to sleep woke up in the morning and my knee was just huge again I was thinking oh god not this again, because obviously the second, I knew obviously from learning a lot about the injury, I knew if you do it the second time, I think there was a 5% chance I said that you'll have a reoccurrence. And obviously I was in the unlucky 5%. And then um, it's going to be nine, 12 months recovery rate for the second time. So then, yeah, that's that was when I was like, mentally, my head was completely gone because I'd been through the last seven months and it's, the first three or four months are deadly boring. Like you're in a knee brace, you can't bend your leg. It it hurts when you move in. You got to try. Imagine trying to go into the toilet with one straight leg. <laughs> it's horrendous. I'm having a shower and I've got like a. I don't even. I don't like a basically a big condom on my leg. <laughs> to stop my leg getting wet in the shower. It was just. It was just day to day. It was just terrible yeah and like coming off the back of having such a good pre-season it was you know it was super frustrating to do that and then again do it again so it was just mentally it was tough the season the the second time was you know probably one of the lowest I've ever been in my whole life yeah like it was you know dreadful do you know like with the with the club I suppose um I'll come on to the fans in a minute but the, the club as you touched before, it is quite a dark moment in, in life that it's it's kind of physically being stopped from. And we're seeing it right now with like a potential second lockdown, all that kind of stuff. You've seen what it was like when people had, you were locked in the house and they couldn't live their life. Unfortunately, yeah. sort of darkness kind of surrounded that. And as a footballer, mm-hmm. if you're told you can't play football for 18 months because your knee's knackered and you can have everything else with it as well. 
Yeah. You definitely need that kind of support. So how supportive were Sunderland's medical team and, and stuff like that? Yeah, they were brilliant. Um, it's fair play to them. You know, they, they, obviously they recognised that it was tough for myself. But on the other hand as well, I had my family really close with my, my aunties and my uncles, my cousins, my brother and stuff like that. So it was, you know, people was always around at my house with me. So I wasn't like feeling like I was in Sunderland on my own. Um, but yeah, they looked after me. They gave me time off. They let me go on holiday and things like that when I needed it. When, you know, and or just, just changing up my schedule a bit just so it's not like... Uh, monotonous um sir alex ferguson actually rang me and said you know if you ever want to come down to um to, to carrington in manchester to you know just to break it up a bit you're more than welcome to which was i thought was a you know great little gesture didn't really need to do that but yeah there's like the support was was excellent you know and, and probably that's i'd say at least half the reason why like i'm back playing football like almost 10 years still playing football 10 years later because you know it made me realize a lot a little bit like lockdown makes you realize what you actually enjoy doing um you can't take certain things for granted um at any moment it could just be gone so you just gotta enjoy what you're doing and and um do the best that you can with it yeah yeah absolutely i think um at that time as well i could be wrong that the time might be off but david myler had the same injury didn't he as well yeah yeah, me and him with um, knee operation buddies. <laughs> used to go to the cinema together, both straight legs out. <laughs> it's a couple of, uh, couple of injured lads just running about. And the thing is, with, with Myler as well, I think that kind of affected him sort of later on. And he obviously retired last year. And I think a lot of that had to do with like, the injuries that he unfortunately yeah. was picking up because of that. So it's, I suppose it goes to show how well the medical team did that you're still playing championship football you know level above something unfortunately for us um 10 years later you know what i mean nah yeah it, it can um that miler's injury i think only one person's ever done that before and that's all the signs around his injury was that he was going to be finished back then and that was like that was 10 years was it was it, it must have been about 23 24 something like that yeah it's young it was it was a good eight years ago something like that so he's he's, he's done well to only retire a year ago yeah, yeah, pretty much because it was, and I think, I think he had another problem with it later on as well, didn't he? He's, I think his knee kind of went again as well. Yeah, he's had a few issues with his knees over the the, the last few years, but you know, it's a part of being old and a part of you know recovering from such a horrendous injury that he had because he he just destroyed every ligament going in his in his knee, which is normally unheard of. Yeah. In terms of the period between, I think it was before you did it the second time. And I was there and I remember this really, really well. And it's, I think it's why you really well liked it, Sunderland. And hopefully you remember it as well. But <laughs> played Blackpool <laughs> away from home. <laughs> yeah. I've just got one of them faces that people recognize instantly because I was thinking, I've got my hat down here. I've got my hood up. You can see this bit of my face. And they were just on me straight away. I was like, I've not even pie yet. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was good. Me and me and my dad and a few of my mates went down there. Just like a little day trip. Because they're the things you miss, you know, when you're injured for so long. Just the match day on Saturday going out there and just being like it when I was at the games were at home. I was just sat up in a box, just watching the game on my own. It's a bit away from the noise because you can't really hear as much. It's a bit, you know, it feel you feel like you just not really part of it but then to go to an away game 
and the Sunderland fans that go away are always a bit balmy. So I was right in the mix. It was yeah, it was a, it was a great afternoon. <laughs> Funny as well because I remember this looking back. Um, it was the game after Darren Bent had gone and there was a big furore around it. And obviously you're very close with Darren. And I remember yeah. specifically some lads trying to get you to join in with a chant <laughs> about Darren Bent. And you were like, no, I, I, I can't, mate. I can't. That's my pal. But um, I think people specifically remember someone messaged me today when I said we were, we were doing this and they said, all they said was Blackpool away. <laughs> all they said. Good. Do you think it's easy to get involved in that kind of thing with the Sunderland, like Sunderland fans? Or do you think, you know, when you're going through a struggling, tough time, that must have been yeah. one of the best moments of that, I would imagine, like feeling part of it and yeah. one of us? Yeah, like I said, it was it was one of the highlights of the 18 months that I was on the sideline. You know, being I'm not really part of the team, but I'm part of the group still because I'm there, the fans are there, they're all singing my name, even though I'm not playing, which is, you know, that's massive confidence boost even you know when you're not not playing it's just nice to 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 know that people are still thinking of you still you know know that you're still there you're not the forgotten man because it's easy to just get forgotten about you know when you're not being on the pitch for so long so it was yeah it was it was really good I'm so happy that I went um to that game we won that game as well didn't we I think we scored twice yep Richardson twice yeah yeah Aaron scored twice yeah brilliant it was when they had that makeshift stand that they had to make. And I think when the second one went in, we all jumped up and down that much. You could yeah. feel the stand sort of shaking. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh shit, how long is this going to last? But um, one thing I wanted to touch on quickly, we were touching sort of Darren Bent before. Um, I think a lot of people look at Darren's departure as sort of the beginning of something's downfall. And, and when he scored for... Uh, Burton against us to basically relegate us to League One. It kind of felt like a full 360. But how big of an impact did Darren Sale have on the team? Uh, you know, it done so well over the years. Um, but you know, when you leave, when you lose a player like that, it's gonna, it's gonna affect you a lot. But I think we signed Jean, didn't we? Then, and he looked like he was going to be the real deal. He scored a few goals already, so it was. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's always sad, especially when, like I said, we're all so close in it, and he was one of my closest pals there. But it's it's football, you know. You, you understand that people come and people go. Um, it's just it's just part of the game. It does affect the team because, like I said, he scored a bag full of goals, but you know, it just opened a path for, for somebody else to try and score those goals. Yeah, absolutely. With, with Darren going, there's so many rumours about Darren Bent um, and his departure. And, and the big one for me was that he had the chance to go to Turkey six months previous. He wanted to go, he wanted a new contract and you can chuck about 10 different rumours into that. My, my question to you would be, as someone who's quite close to Darren, what, did his departure surprise you? Or did you sort of see it coming in his body language that he wasn't 100% happy? I didn't, I didn't really see it coming. It's one of them things, you know, you've got hot property scoring goals people are going to want to buy him and it's always going to be rumour mill and stuff like that and you didn't really think that anything would come of it so yeah it did take me a bit of back a little bit that you know it was oh yeah he's, he's gone to Aston Villa I was like wow you know but like I said it happens in football you, you can think that somebody's there for life and the next minute they're gone for whatever reason so who who knows why it happened but yeah, it was. It was like I said. It was tough for me because he was. He was my, one of my closest friends there. But 
you know, got my chance to take a shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, did. That's very true, actually. Very true. Um, just going back to the injury before, we're touching the support you had as um, from professionals and, and the club itself, but you did strike up a really good relationship with the Sunderland fan base, and it's no surprise that people were, like were quite happy when they seen that you're coming on the show today. And um, but even now, like a decade after your departure, the relationship still really solid. I think a lot of that came because of you know, the injury that happened and, and, and the way that he came back from it. But if you could say like one thing to a Sunderland fan base about the support they showed you during your time, like what would it be? I don't know. I could say a million things. It just, they helped me get back from a ta- from a place where I wasn't even sure what to do it anymore, especially doing my knee the second time. If I didn't have... Um, the support of the fans. I set up a Twitter as well around the time I, I got injured again. And the messages and stuff that were coming through there were really, can't, like I said, I can't thank people enough for the message that was getting through that. Because it is, it is you do feel very lonely. Um, you're not part of it. You want to be part of it. And it's, you know, it's vitally important for to hear, you know, that you still wanted, you're still part of the gang kind of thing. Um, especially from the people that, you know, it means the most to them, which is is the fans. I think during that time as well, I did a lot of uh, community work, you know, stuff like the Sunderland Foundation stuff. I did a lot of stuff for that, um, you know, because it was important for me to, you know, still feel like part of the um, community and part of the team or in, in as much way as possible by, you know, getting out there and, and doing things in and around the town to you know to try and help others even though I couldn't help the team on a Saturday I could still do my bit in and around the, the city for the, the people of Sunderland. Talking about yeah the positive of the injury was the comeback another game that I was there for and I'll be honest I got rat arsed after that day really oh. really really hammered um, but by the time you got fit again actually Brucey had gone um, and obviously Martin O'Neill yeah. had, had came in and arrived and I remember there was rumours that, you know, Fraser Campbell could be on the bench, he could be fit. And then we played Borra, um, as it was at home. I think he came on at half-time for Conor Wickham. Um, so everyone's like, oh, brilliant, he's back. And it was just a nice moment to see you back in, in a game. But your first touch, you, you put it in the bottom corner. I think we all remember the celebration, but talk me through that moment for you and, and what was going on in your head at that time. It was, like you said, I was delighted to just be involved in the game because it had been such a long time. And then, obviously, brought me on at half-time. I was even more delighted than to score. It just felt like there was a massive release of emotions, like, leaving my body. It was a surreal moment. I was running around, shouting. I think I nearly passed out, just shouting. And it, you know, it was a good finish, but it wasn't like a, a world It didn't deserve that celebration. <laughs> it was well-placed, I'll give you that. <laughs> just, it was just the, the baggage that it had behind yeah. it that... It, that extra bit you know special and it was yeah that was probably my favourite goal for Sunderland you know on the back of all that rubbish that had gone on to get back on there and and, and to score a goal and it was nice because I remember the, the elation of it happening I remember everyone kind of feeling almost what you felt at the same time like around you everyone just like if anyone yeah. wanted it to drop to someone on the edge of the box and put in the bottom corner everyone wanted that to yeah. be you so kind of yeah. felt like we willed it in. And did you feel that kind of level of you yourself, obviously you're celebrating it, but did you feel like everyone else kind of had the same level of like outburst, like thank God it was him? 
Yeah, definitely. Like when I celebrate, I think the first person that came up to me was uh, Bardo. So he was, and I could tell like, he didn't really celebrate goals, but he was, he was, you know, delighted for me because they'd see me from day to day. They'd see me when I looked, you know, a bit low or whatever, and you know how much it had affected me to to be on the sidelines for so long. So to get back in the mix and and get a goal, you know, everyone, you know, like I said before, the team was like closely knit so they, they knew what it meant for me to be out there and you know you could see that they were you know, equally as happy for me to, to get that goal. As someone who would probably be a direct beneficiary of the team spirit that was sort of fostered there a lot of the time you look back and in hindsight's a wonderful thing but you look at players like Barsley and Catamore and you think what they brought to the, the team themselves like how much of a vital cog were the likes of Phil Barsley and Lee Catamore to the team spirit and how it worked? Yeah, because uh, Katz was, he's the same age as me, but he was, he acted like he was 45. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> he was an old boy. He had his thoughts really high, like old school geezer. But there was just, it, that's, that was a whole vibe around the whole place. Everyone worked hard um, and didn't expect anyone else to, to work any less. And if you didn't, you'd get a rollicking. You know, everyone got experience, so they knew. They knew how they wanted to play. They knew how we needed to play. So it was like eight different captains on the pitch at a time. And it makes it a lot easier, you know, when everyone's pulling together like that. And you've got experienced heads there that are barking out orders. It, you know, it sets the tone. It sets the ethos of the club, really, um, to get everyone pulling in the right direction. Talking about turnaround and fortunes, though, it wasn't just that goal that you scored against Middlesbrough, I think three days later, you scored an absolute worldly goal of the season. And then I think it was like a week or two later, you get a call up to the England squad. So what's it like going from like no football for months to like scoring goal of the season, scoring with your first touch, getting called up by England? Yeah, it was it, it was a top 10 goals of the decade, that one, by the way. Um. <laughs> it was an absolute beauty, mate. I was right behind it. It was a beauty, that one. Absolute beauty. Uh, yeah. My adrenaline was just carried me through it um it was yeah you couldn't have written a better script to come back into football to score on your first appearance then a few days later like I said score a worldie in the Premier League and then get a call up for England and then my my daughter was born as well on that day as well so it's as you were due to come on I think I believe is that right almost the same sort of time yeah in Sunderland so I had to get a flight after they played for England straight back up to Sunderland so yeah (laughs) It was a whirlwind of emotions for about four weeks. <laughs> and then when all that settles down, then I was just dead on my feet. I couldn't get up in the morning. I was just shattered. It was <laughs> unbelievable. But it was, it was a special, like I said, special period in my career. Um, yeah, like I said, you could, you couldn't, you could, I couldn't have written a better script to come back into football. So obviously you're getting called up by, by England. And I think, you know, not only for yourself... I think fortunes of the club completely flipped when Martin O'Neill came in. Um, it actually really felt like we'd wanted Martin for ages. We were winning. We weren't just winning games one or two nil. We were scoring worldies. It was your goal. It was like Sessegnon in the same game. It was a phenomenal goal from your cross. Absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. We went to Middlesbrough and won. Jack Colback scoring worldies. And I mean, if Jack Colback scoring worldies, you know something's going right. You know what I mean? Um but although it seems like sort of a distant memory, um, one part I remember, we weren't used to winning derbies at this point. 
And I know that's like a distant memory because we haven't lost one in about 11 years or something. But <laughs> um, we went to St. James's Park during that unbelievable run that we had. And we put in a really, really solid performance that day. Yes, we only drew 1-1. But I remember in the first sort of 30 seconds, Lee Catmull went and smashed into Tiote in the first sort of 30 seconds, took the yellow card. Was there a feeling in the dressing room that day that because we'd lost 5-1 the year previous, we weren't going to get bullied that day and we were going to come out with some sort of result? Yeah. They, you know, you go into that game and we ordered one. You know, it's the, it's the one game that everyone in the North East looks forward to. The first, when the fixtures come out, it's the first one you look for. When's that? When we're playing them at home, when we're playing them away. And to get beat in that fashion the year before, it was a bit of a, you know, you felt bad. It was a bit of an embarrassment. So then the next time you play them, you want to you set it straight. You know, like you said, Cats flew in, smashed someone in the first 30 seconds. It just it just sets the tone, let, lets them know that it's, you know, that happened last year. It's not it's not going to happen this year. My favourite part about Cats in that game was he, he smashed into someone in the first 30 seconds and I'm sat in the away end and we all admittedly thought there's no way Cats is going to last 90 minutes without getting <laughs> a second booking. And he had the most professional, like, Good game, yeah. like all of his tackles were controlled. And then it got to the 90th minute and Cessna had been sent off and he went up with the ref- referee and was that fucking disgrace that and started shouting at the referee. The referee sent him straight off. It's like he got, he still got sent off, but after it was just like, oh, cats, man. But what a guy. Everyone loves cats or something. What a guy. Um, what a guy. Great to have you team, but he oh, can. Great fella. No red. <laughs> um, that kind of, upturning performances really continued on and I think it did for you as well I think I remember you playing up front down at um, Borough when we were away and we won the obviously the replay and I think you played a few games up front and then you switched it up a little bit it was sort of bent their session on ever so slightly Mm. but one game that seemed to really damage all of the good work that happened under O'Neill and everything went as a downturn after that was the FA Cup quarterfinal replay defeat to, to Everton like after that game, we sort of like limped to the end of the season and we really struggled for form and it kind of went into the next season. How much of a toll did that defeat take on the entire squad? I can't, I can't remember it. What was the score? Probably 2 0 if David Vaughan fell into his own goal. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like you said, you feel like you, you're building momentum throughout the year and then it's, it's, it's strange. You get one game. Maybe we just overbelieved in ourselves a little bit, and you know we got a bit complacent or whatnot. But yeah, I can't, I can't even put my finger on it. Really, it's just, just one of those things. Saying that, we went to, I think we went to City a few days later and drew three three. But then after that, it just we sort of fell off. We didn't fall off a cliff. We just kind of limped yeah. along, and it was like a melee. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, just, I don't know. Just one of those things. I think just something that, <laughs> mate. Isn't it? Um, the following <laughs> summer. Obviously, Martin O'Neill, I think everyone kind of went, you know, here we go, like, good manager, he's on summer, he's going to bring players in, he's done this, it's felt like that at Villa. Uh, he brought in Stephen Fletcher on big money, obviously he brought in Adam Johnson on big money, he, but he also added, like, Louis Sahar as well to the team. And he yeah. actually made 15 appearances that season, but 14 of them were from the bench and only one of them was starting. Did Martin O'Neill, was he quite honest with you that he didn't have a future? Well, he was... With the, this, with me and Martin, he like came in, and then I was playing. I came back from injury, playing, doing really well. Like I said, scored some couple of goals. Got called up for England, and it was like, the talk was, "Oh, we need to get your agent in. 
get you a new deal because the season after was my last season yeah. about get a new deal sorted and then it just like like a month later opposite it was just like well wasn't playing was on the bench sometimes was in the stand so then the end of, towards the end of the season wasn't really playing start the new season for you know it's a fresh start didn't really play that much from the start of the season till till um till January when I, I ended up leaving. So it was for me it started off great and then it just went really flat and nothing. I didn't play as regularly as I'd have liked um for whatever reason. But yeah, it didn't it just didn't work out for me under Martin O'Neill. How did your relationship with well how did Martin O'Neill differ at Brucey? Because I think Brucey seemed quite hands-on, whereas Martin O'Neill was probably the opposite from what I've been told. Yeah, like I didn't know how to take Martin O'Neill at all. Like you never knew what he was thinking. Sometimes he'd say something just to get a reaction out of you, or sometimes he'd just be completely silent. Like he'd just be sat there having a laugh and a a drink with the lads or whatever at the canteen, and he'd come sit down in the middle as if he was going to say something, but then end up saying absolutely nothing and then getting up and leaving. So it's, it was all a bit mind games. And like you said, from going from a manager that tells you like you're doing well or you're doing rubbish to then going to that, it was a bit, it was yeah. complete. Yeah. So for me, it was, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't ideal for me. Yeah. <laughs> as it was, like you said, you, you left for Cardiff in 2013, but since you've left, and I don't know if this is just something rumour mill, but you've been linked to the club quite a few yeah. times, sort of sporadically. Has any previous manager tried to bring you back? No, not one. <laughs> not one manager. It's just, I don't know. Because obviously I, I enjoy my time up there and I've played there. It must just make like, sense for him to just write, oh, well, Fraser's free or Fraser's coming to end of his contract. Maybe he's coming up. But I've never been approached by by Sunderland since I've left there to come back. Well, it's still time, I suppose. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of... <laughs> I was going to say, final question. I felt bad writing this because like, I'm 34, so I'm thinking bloody hell, but you're 33, which is, in, in footballers' terms, especially when you're playing regular championship football, it's years yeah. left in you yet. But I know these days footballers can like start looking at the future and, and start doing their coaching badges maybe before they're even 30. So... What are your plans for the future? Do you see yourself as kind of like the next pundit? Do you see yourself as a coach or are you kind of still deciding? I'm still deciding, you know. And I know, for, well, I don't know for a fact, but I'm going away from the, the 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 option of being a coach and things like that. It's not it's not really who I am. I don't really like that side of, of football. I like the match days and I like the change room banner, but I don't like going out at half seven in the morning to put cones out to get kids... <laughs> In at sessions, crap, because that's all I used to do. The guy that's sitting out sessions just used to batter him. <laughs> Even if it was the best session that I'd done, I'm still letting him know that I thought it was rubbish just to keep him on his toes. So, yeah, I don't fancy that. I don't think I think I will do something involved with football, but not like like cone setting out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, final question, which I've started quite like an asking, but. Most underrated player from your time at Sunderland? Well, the easy ones to say Jordan, because a lot of people don't think he's any good, but, you know, the, the way he's um, progressed and the way his career's turned out, you, you know, you'd be an idiot to think that he was a rubbish player. Yes. But I don't know, most underrated. 
I don't know. I got David Vaughan once. Yeah, David Vaughan, he was he was quite assassin, didn't really say much, but on his day he was, you know, his technically was he was brilliant. Um yeah, really good player. But yeah, I think most players that were were appreciated. I don't think anyone was, you know, not really appreciated, but they're really good. Like like you said, yeah. Vaughan, he was probably one of them. I'm just trying to think. Can't rack, rack him brains, yeah. I think it's something nah. we we value players quite a bit. We if they yeah. if they're good, we can kind of see. Very rarely would you get someone underrated, but David yeah. Warren would have been my choice. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. Awesome, Fraser. Thanks very much, mate. Got to catch up. Yeah. No, nah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely not a problem. Um, maybe see you in the future. Who knows? It's back in red and white. You never know. Well, there's a window coming up soon, isn't this? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is, mate. God knows how long we'll be playing football now, but geez, yeah, you're absolutely right, 100%.